Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours as always. Today's fascinating interview is with um, a woman called Kathy Unsworth, who's a, an author, an ex-music journalist, who has written an incredible book contextualising the history of goth called Season of the Witch. Unputdownable is what I'd say. Um, it's very rare nowadays I have time to read a physical book from cover to cover, but um, this is really worth checking out. We are on the same wavelength, just about everything. We grew up in a similar period. And it's the kind of darker side of the way that things diverged in the early 80s. Of course, we went on to do the credible but more straightforward kind of pop thing. And a lot of this stuff is the more kind of, if you like, the darker and more esoteric side of music, as it was. But he talks about people like, obviously, the influence of people like Mark Armand, Dean Curtis, Susie, Crass, Amanda Galas, Lydia Lunch, John Peel, etc., etc. You get the idea, and the and the kind of political and cultural context from that period. This is really a fascinating interview. I hope you like it. Here she is, Kathy Unsworth. Uh, thank you for doing this um, podcast and. Um, I have read your uh, amazing book, Season of the Witch, as you know. Thank you so much, Martin. It really means to me. Which is quite an achievement for me to read a book from cover to cover because I'm just being so overwhelmed with stuff to do this year. But um, I couldn't put it down, so that's quite a good thing. You can put that on on, on the next edition. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't put it down. Uh, (laughs) That's brilliant. for people who are listening to the podcast who don't know who you are, do you want to introduce your yourself? Well, I guess I I was a music journalist and I started doing that in 1987 when I was 19. I worked for Sounds until it closed down, sadly, in 1991. And then I went over to Melody Maker for a while there. And then in about at the early 90s, I did a sort of, I got more into, um, wanting to do not just music, but I think people who like music, like all the surrounding art, right, yeah, fine art. And it's the contextualisation of music uh, framed by appreciation of art, literature, films, media, yeah. Yeah, because it all feeds into itself, doesn't it? Yeah. I've always regarded, you know, what we do as being an art project, really, more than a band. Yeah. Um, anyway. And, no, but it's in, isn't it interesting how many people in the book come from an art college background? And well, I don't. I uh, this is the interesting thing. So both myself, uh, Ian Marsh, and, and Glenn Gregory, who are the other members of Hem Seventeen, and Phil Oakey, and the rest of um, the rest of the early Human League, none of us went to art college. We were all. Uh, uh, hungry for knowledge because we were in a situation where it was hard to come by. It's not like that now, of course, but uh, so we were completely um, impassioned by the idea that we this entire world of knowledge was was there for us, you know. But we, all we had was like libraries, really, at that yeah. time, documentaries. So yeah. yeah, everybody thinks that kind of Hem Seventeen was a kind of art college band, but not it wasn't really. 
that way. It wasn't at all, actually. But there was that sort of autodidact thing yeah. in the late 70s and early 80s. It was really cool to read books, which sadly doesn't seem to be anymore. And to be into art and to seek out the weirdest films that you possibly could. And I think that's part of the whole, that whole scene. Oh, I think, it's a, I think it's incredibly important for people to understand that because, well, particularly, you know, I'm from Sheffield, as you know, but uh, I've lived in London for 40 years. And the one great thing, as far as I'm concerned about London, is it's got, a huge uh, cultural possibilities. Every yeah. day of the week, live music of different types from different parts of the world. Every museum now is free. Uh, you can go to see stuff. I mean, it's inexhaustible, I think is the word, I, 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 the way I put it. Uh, there are many bad things about London, which I'm not so thrilled about. It's too big and it's hard to get around and expensive. But um, yeah. But apart from that, anyway, let's get back to you. No, but you can never get to the end of London. So, okay, so in about the mid-90s, this kind of ties into London, actually. I, I, when I was still at Melody Maker, I had some... My favourite band at the time were Gallon Drunk, and two of them, James Johnson and Terry Edwards, made a record called Dora Suarez with Derek Raymond, who was a fantastic crime writer of the like that I'd never really met before and I actually probably never will again. He was a very interesting man. He'd, he'd been a gangster in the early 60s. He'd been to Eton and uh, wow. said that the best training that anyone could have. All the best gangsters go to Eton and then become <laughs> part of the government, right? And anyway, so things had got dodgy and he'd, he'd gone to the continent, he'd run a vineyard, he'd had his own olive grave in Italy, he'd been the head of his own anarchist collective. He was the most interesting, amazing. I felt like he was the Johnny Rotten of crime. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and his books were fantastic because what was really different about them was they were more about the victim and what had happened to, to put them in the position where they got killed than the detective. The detective. His detective didn't even have a name and he was just like a guardian of lost souls and investigated the cases that no one else was bothered about in a in a sort of grim little adjunct of the Met called Unexplained Deaths. So I just wanted to be like him. So then I started really seriously studying crime fiction as, as seriously as I'd studied music and I got a job where I could be a books editor and interview loads of people and no, it, it felt the two things sort of did feed into each other. But what, then, where, where did you study? I what, where I studied at Great Yarmouth College Art of, of Art and Design. That was a my fine favorite. institution. Yes, and when I when I was six, and I tried to study fashion actually, but I wasn't very good at the technical. I'm good at the ideas. I could think of loads, yeah. of, but I couldn't make clothes very well. So then I went on to do fashion journalism at London College of Fashion. And they made you go on courses in industry. So that's how I got into sound. Because um, I'd been, I had a summer job with one of the ex-students of London College of Fashion to had set up her own PR company. Right. Her name was Lynn Parker. I must give her credit. And she let me do a summer job. They were doing Reading Festival. And it was... Right. The pre, even pre Vince Paradise, when it was still the National Blues and Jazz Festival, it still was affiliated to the Marquee Club. Oh. 
you know, and it was the last traumatic year under them that had Meatleaf, Starship and Bonnie Tyler all having all the piss hurled at them <laughs> by an angry audience. Bring back the piss bottles is what I <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> so I mean, but in the early days of the Human League, we got, I mean, we got gobbed on continuously. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to take the cat in. Excuse yeah. me. <laughs> Hold on one second. Just talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've been doing these. I've done 160 or so, 170 now of these podcasts. Wow. And the bits they like best is when things go wrong. I've, what I've discovered. <laughs> They're not interested in the... In, in the, in the they are. But you know what I mean? Um, Oh, Vito's really impressive. But I used to live so far in the wilds of Norfolk that we had a cat like that in our garden. And really? He looked like a wild cat. And they're not supposed to exist in that part of the world. But it was so... We had The farmer who owned the land was into conservation and nature. Long, He was way ahead of his time. And he just left all these areas. So right. Could have been families of wild cats there for centuries and he wouldn't have disturbed them. But there was are you one. Are you a cat person? I, I rather am keen on them. I'm keen on most animals, actually, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I love cats, they're great. Um, right, so let's get back to you growing up and um, you got your first job and then you got a break and uh, you decided this was your calling, no doubt. Yeah, when I started right, yeah. I, to be a I, journalist or to... Just, I mean, when did you think that you were going to become... You wanted, you fancied writing stuff in longer form. Well, when I was about four, I tried to write my first novel and I, I tried <laughs> to illustrate it. <laughs> so I, I, it was a story of a, a horse that was on the roundabout at the fair and he wanted to escape into the field. So How brilliant. <laughs> I drew pictures of him turning from this blue horse with a golden mane into a brown horse with black mane and tail who ran away and escaped from the circuit. <laughs> You clearly are a creative person. So when, right, let's, okay, so let's, as you probably know on these podcasts, I keep dodging around this timeline. Yeah, that's what I like about uh, Yeah. Um, having a conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm not Michael Parkinson, I assure you. But um, I'm interested in what is it, getting down to the core of what appeals to you so much about goth. Yeah. And, what, and in fact, I suppose before that, what your definition of goth is? Well, I do think having, I've done quite a lot of talks and spoken to loads of people around the country and all, all my little gigs so far have been like the Adams Family reunions. They've all been so nice. Even, <laughs> you know, some of them, because goths can easily recognise each other. That's one good thing about, you know. When yeah. you live in the middle of nowhere, it's just fields and mist. You can spot your fellow goth flittering into view with, thanks to their black hair, black clothes, and yeah. certain albums they'd be have tucked under their arms. I guess. I think that actually, you no, know, seriously, talking to people about it, I form the opinion that it's part of our DNA is the gothic, however you want. Yeah. That I think throughout time it's a response to the traumas that the nation goes through. And we went through a massive trauma in the middle of the 80s. Well, from 
that's why my book was originally supposed to be called Goth in the Time of Thatcher, because I did really want it to, to show the music as a response to her reign. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, yeah. And that makes sense the title, The Season of the Witch, even even though that's a brilliant song. And I and Julie Driscoll's version of it is my favourite. And when I talked to Susie once, she said that Julie Driscoll seeing her on top of the pops was the thing that made her think, I can do this. She's like me. So there's that. But... And it's sort of, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, at the start of the Industrial Revolution, William Blake wrote about the dark satanic mills. And then as it comes to an end, Justin Sullivan from New Model Army quotes Jerusalem in his song 1984 about what happened during the miners' strike. And I thought, God, it's like a circle. And I don't know, and Shelley writing The Mask of Anarchy at the time, of the Peterloo massacre, which was under the premiership of Lord Liverpool, who whose term in office was matched by Margaret Thatcher, and she boasted about that quite a lot at the time. I just think we still remember Shelley, and we still remember what Mary Shelley did. I mean, all the romantics and the decadents and the Dadaists and the surrealists. All these people are sort of being a medium, if you like, for their times. They're put in the trauma of the people into an artistic form that we remember down the centuries. And we remember we remember Jerusalem more than any history book we've read. So I think that our goths in the 80s that we're talking about, and definitely what you were doing was a total adjunct to that. I also think there's two pathways that went down, the electronic one and the twang one. <laughs> and goth yeah. There's very much thought in the goth rage all the way along like that. I mean, I've told this story before, uh, not wishing to be boring for the listeners, but we were headhunted to headline the Whitby Goth Fest, which I presume you may have been to at some point. Have you? I would love. I have never actually attended. I would love to flitter down there. I've been to oh, Whitby. Oh, Patty, it is unmissable. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking awesome, frankly. Firstly, it's in Whitby, which is great. It's gorgeous. Uh, but but it's not like anything. I mean, at first, we said, are you sure you got the right Heaven 17 here? <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. Temptation is, and this is from the horse's mouth, right? Yeah. People organised this event. They said, Temptation is a, an, a, a goth anthem. And I'm yeah. going, what? Really? Okay, because it's about, I suppose, a kind of uh, a, a kind of subversion of the Lord's Prayer, and it's got a little darkness in it, you know, yeah. in the, the mix. And uh, but it's also sex, about sexuality, and uh, th all those themes kind of wrap into the whole goth thing. So anyway, we did the gig, and it was on um, yeah. Halloween. So we thought. Well, if we're going to do it, we better get right into it. So I dressed as Dracula with the full okay. makeup, and I rented a, a proper Dracula, a film Dracula outfit from Nathan Berman's, you know, in London. Uh, Glenn, um, Glenn was the new version of the Joker, which he does brilliantly, by the way. Uh, we had four backing singers who looked amazing, and both myself and Glenn grew up. When we were growing up uh, and doing Human League and, and Heaven 17, we, you know, a lot of the girls that came to our parties were goths. Yeah. They probably didn't identify as goths, but they really were. I guess it was yeah. that fallout from the punk period. 
Yeah, so, and it's a pretty good look, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and the the interesting thing about it was it's very sexy, number one, very attractive to us. But also, it didn't really matter. It didn't really matter how physically beautiful they were. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying this as in a pejorative way. I'm just saying it, it was kind of like an equaliser. Yeah. Because... The fact that they were willing to show their individuality yeah. to you yeah. and be out about it was such an attractive thing to us. And that was really what it was about. So anyway, it was great times for all concerned. I'm sure they enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. Um, yeah. And so I think several things about goth um, I want to discuss with you. One is the obvious primacy of fashion as part of the whole scenario I, I mean let's put it this way if you take fashion out of the equation and makeup and and carnival yeah. uh, aspects you're just left with the music thing which is of course interesting but it's, it's not as much fun unless you would dress up is it well that was and you say yeah part of the attraction for me was the women that I was drawn to all looked so amazing and they like Susie for one, Lydia Lunch, you I listened to your really brilliant interview with Annie Hogan and I was really interested that you liked Lydia so much because I love Lydia Lunch. My total heroines and yeah. Her Jules with her red hair and tattoos. Her Lydia and Jules shutting up rooms full of punk rockers to listen to them just speak, just just their words, not even yeah, yeah. behind them. That made me think that I could do anything. That I wanted and you know Poison Ivy another brilliant one Patricia Morrison they all looked really fantastic and that look was kind of harking back to the 50s maybe for some of them harking back to the Julie Driscoll we mentioned before but definitely like Poison Ivy was looking at B-movies she was a complete expert on them I've got a few footage of her of her and Alux just talking about movies, which was brilliant because they basically knew everything. Um, and they just looked like they wouldn't take any shit off any. I love that. <laughs> Strong women. Yeah. It's, it's just attractive to me uh, and and just about every other man that I know from that period. You know, we, I mean, we too, we did two tours with Susie and the Banshees. And Susie was like a goddess to us, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you know, you strip away the the look and the fact she's supremely talented and blah, blah, blah. I mean, when she was hanging out as an adjunct to the whole, you know, early punk scene. Yeah. She was an attractive girl, but nothing special. And then she just transformed into this goddess, yeah. you know, out of, full of fire and confidence. and and But not in, interestingly, not in an aggressive way. There was, no. I didn't find uh, with Susie that there was anything aggressive about her act. It was, it was, it was like, thank God, women are finally have the confidence to be who they are without having to uh, 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 cow out to the lens with uh, the the male lens, right? Yeah, I think that was it. Like looking the way you wanted to, rather than a stylist being involved and. In- yeah, definitely punk have made that happen. And that it's interesting, though, as well, isn't it, that at the beginning of my book, I've got four bands that I think were sort of born out of 
Punk, which is obviously the Bounty's Joy Division magazine and The Cure, but they take the music to a totally different place from Nevermind the Bollocks, don't they? And it's yeah. all of them, I think, are way... I'm going to say something contentious here, which is, I think, um, Never Mind the Box, great album, but it was really kind of souped-up pub rock as far as as far as far we were concerned. And yeah. it's only when people, like, very quickly, The Damned came along and they felt a bit... And, and Bauhaus and... The, these were, were the ones that were really appealed to us and the darker end of it. And killing those, yeah. take part in your book, right? Yeah. Uh, Sex Pistols were, uh, were a tabloid phenomenon, and that was what Malcolm McLaren wanted them to be. Mm. And John Lydon, you know, must have not got enough attention when he was young because he'll do anything to get attention, you know. So, and I know John, and, you know, we were friends for a long time. I've unfortunately lost contact with him because I can't deal with this kind of Trumpian thing that he went yeah. into. But yeah. um, we were friend, very close friends for a long time. In fact, I did some recording with him. And, um, and you know, it was a, a, a... I like Pill very much, by the way. Much yeah. more so. Because it was more of a musical project. But the, the whole Sex Pistols thing was fun for me. Yeah. I think what yeah. it did was it was like it set this thing off and it yeah. went like a virus throughout the country and it just made... Any young person think I can do this? Yeah, that was what's so valuable. But when I did Jordan, yeah, were you in a band? I was never in a band because why not? I can't sing. <laughs> I can't do all I can do. If you can't do it right about it, that's what they say, isn't it? No, I I think I know. I would probably have. I I don't know. I found it quite hard to get up on stage and read my books, but in the end, I luckily got enough expert coaching from Lydia. And now I love doing it, but, right. you, you know. Um, Couldn't you have learnt an instrument? And Well, maybe I could. I learnt the piano up to grade two, but the problem more, was I wasn't, wasn't... More than me. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I'd have seen that brilliant footage of Jerry Lee Lewis and that All You Need Is Love programme, to like going right. Pacific, and I would have probably been more inclined to carry on my piano studies, but anyway, yeah. anyway. But, yeah. I can just see you as a, you know, you've got a look. Even now, you've got a look. But back then you had a look. I've seen the photos and stuff. Yeah. No, you could have I, been the new Susie. I couldn't because I can't bloody sing. Oh. <laughs> You'd have needed, what was it? Jane's hat and the butthole service, the Gibbytronics or something to make me sound at all decent. But, <laughs> okay. But no, I, what I was going to say was, I've just yeah. remembered when I did Jordan's book with her, because obviously that's centered in on 430 Kings Road and everything. Yeah. Simon Barker, her friend, said one of the most true, interesting things, I think, about what we've just been saying that the Sex Pistols were just rock and roll, but it was the girls who took it all in a different direction. Yeah. It was polystyrene, it was the slits taking it into different and they are doing stuff that they wouldn't no one had thought of before and this is what i think goth gate it that the, the banshees took music somewhere different and joy division who were very much inspired by the pistols weren't they 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 did as well and it's really much more cinematic what those two are doing as well isn't it they really i think the cinematic thing is a big 
thing. It was for us. We were always, you know, framing everything that we were doing in this idea that it was creating imagery in your mind, which is essentially creating a soundtrack for an imaginary film. Uh, And that kind of carried on throughout our, our career. And I think a lot of people from that period, it's interesting. I think back to Joy Division now. And there was always a thing between Sheffield and Manchester. It's like we always thought Manchester has been miserable bastards. And we always thought that, you know, Sheffield, uh, in a strange sort of way, was more aspirational because we had nothing to lose. Whereas Manchester, yeah. it seemed to be more about, I mean, we played at the factory club and all that stuff. It was always like, you know, kind of too cool for school you know, kind of trench coats, dark glasses, barely yeah. everything at the end of songs. Uh, uh, and whereas Sheffield, people were not so bothered about going to gigs. It was more about doing shit. I think it's in the it is, it's in the blood of Sheffield people to be creators, to be makers. Yeah, I would agree. And one of my friends who helped me do some soundtracks stuff for, for my readings was from Sheffield. Pete would have, well, from the Midlands, but he came of age in Sheffield and was friends with Cabaret Voltaire and all the. I in my head, Sheffield is the place where there's like a little rainbow shining over, it and it's quite future. It's t- going towards the future, whereas on the other side of the Pennines, the rain is slanting down on me, yeah. and yeah. it's a, almost a different century. It's weird. It is Moss Side, where the Factory Club was, was pretty rough in those days. Um, yeah, we regularly were warned about parking our transit van in, in the wrong place and keep it near to the door so that people don't, you know, and all that stuff. But it was interesting because essentially post in post Thatcher, Manchester has been um has had more money than Sheffield. Sheffield is still recovering from that believe it or not yeah no uh, manchester is like fucking dubai now you know <laughs> oh honestly so much money my my son lives up there and it's just insane anyway um let's get back it's to still the... slanting down on it though like staring the weather isn't great there no i have to say um <laughs> so the, the the kind of heroes from that period i mean we, i've heard you talk about uh, Mark Armand, who's a good friend of mine, and all that Leeds scene was quite interesting to me. And yeah. I've interviewed Mark. Uh, I haven't interviewed Mark. He wouldn't do the podcast, funnily enough. Oh, really? I've interviewed, I know, weird. Um, yeah. But he's a good friend, anyway. Um, uh, uh, Dave Ball's done it. And uh, I've asked him about that that period in Leeds. And also Annie, of course. Annie Hogan. Yeah. I find it all fascinating because, again, there's a thing... Uh, Sheffield and Leeds had a thing going on as well, you know, because Leeds had the warehouse and, and all that stuff. We used to go up there, but we always felt that Sheffield had more of a vibe. And there were more bands, actually, in Sheffield. Mm. Cabaret Voltaire were very much our mentors. Yeah. And, um, I mean, refresh my memory. What? Uh, I mean, I think Cabaret Voltaire uh, need more credit for the kind of you know uh, for the kind of flag post they put on the hill uh, for yeah. experimentation and weirdness Absolutely. Uh, and they don't get enough credit and internationally funnily enough 
they seem to get more credit than in the, in the UK. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mean, I didn't go down that alleyway because it's not my area of expertise of them and TG and all that, because there's that brilliant book, England's Hidden Reverse, which covers all that. I don't know that book. What's it? It's on Strange Attractor. It's called England's Hidden Reverse, and it's all about them and Coil and all that. Wow. Strange music, that kind of in the electronic fairyland weird... And tape, it, manip- tape manipulations, big thing as well. Yeah, all of I think that you're. I think often it's really what's really irritating and what what you try and try and get credit for people in these situations who you feel have been prophets without honour in their own land. And I, you know, there's various people in the goth story that have just worked. Cardiacs were one of them. I had to put them in there because they just did something so totally different to everyone else. And they had a massive following and most of their following were goths, but they never recognised in Tim Smith's lifetime for the genius that he was, because it, maybe yeah. it's just too far out for most normal people's brains to take, I don't know. There's, there is a being too far, bringing in too many things that the normal brain maybe can't cope with, like not dis, not having any anything to say that you can't put in this i love all kinds of music therefore i put all kinds of music into what i'm doing maybe that's too much for some people i don't know yeah i think so the the great thing the other great thing about cabaret voltaire was this this insistence that they had visual accompaniment uh at their gigs and like self-filmed eight mils uh stuff you know out of focus often uh, and kind of impressionistic uh stuff was really ahead of its time you know yeah. It, it, yeah. And it definitely influenced the early human league when we when we had slides and all that stuff um and sometimes i went to uh some cabaret voltaire gigs and thought that the visuals are more interesting than the music yeah. I, I, I presume that I mean, you say you, you know you didn't go down the throbbing gristle route but you must know about the Throbbing Gristle 24-hour box set. Do you know about that one? Yeah. <laughs> Which made me laugh so much. And it's unlistenable. Whole... Unlistenable. But it's an art concept as well, isn't it? It's exactly. the, whole, the whole thing of what you can get away with doing as well. Like... Yeah. Okay, let's talk about politics because, um, as you know, I'm a rabid, rabid socialist. Um. And I don't think there are enough people who fully understand what it is anymore. No, uh, <laughs> uh, And I think the vast majority of people from that period were socialists, you know, I mean, of our age group. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're younger than me, but... Um, but yeah, now I was and I was brought up to be, which made me quite different from most, where I grew up. Most of the most of my friends' parents did vote Tory, but mine didn't. And right, good. Yeah, so that was... It was interesting to sort of, yeah, because we didn't have our roots in that place. We had our roots in the north, and loads of my family were miners, and the ones that weren't were agricultural workers. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, so, what do you think about the current Labour Party? Not a lot, really. No. I, I what I, what I did find really interesting to look back at this time was sort of how it all fragmented in the 80s, didn't it? How everything that we thought of 
as the Socialists and the Labour Party and what they should, should stand for got just annihilated by what Margaret Thatcher did. Annihilated? Yeah. In perpetuity? Yeah. I don't I think, think it's ever, I, I don't think the Labour Party is ever going to come back. No. So I think people belly aching about, oh, you'll split the vote, you let the Tories in. Listen, short-term pain for long-term gain is what I say. There is no current left representation in the UK, uh, yeah. electorally, if you believe in the electoral system, which I think is also completely flawed unless we get proportional representation anyway. Um, yeah. So I think there has to be a left party and somebody yeah. better get on organising it. I don't have time to do it. Um, there was a chance when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge. I'm good friends with Jeremy uh, um, and, and he's one of the most decent great politicians and he will be he will go down in history as that i'm not worried about what anybody else says i know him and i know i know all that stuff anyway moving but on like michael foot never got a chance did he no and and, John and smith never got a chance and they were the people that i yeah think. and smith unfortunately that was a big two. that was the biggest bummer of all time that he died that was, I even in my head, I imagine a Nosferatu-like scene where John Smith's lying in his bed and Mandy appears at the window in bat form. Yeah. No, Tony must get in. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go back to music. <laughs> yeah. So g give us a kind of top three of your inspiring women in music then. So, yeah, Lydia Lunch. Yeah. Um, Jules and Susie probably are my top three um right. and as i say yeah lydia never ever gets her juice but never never for the amount of stuff she's done in so many different categories and kept on doing and kept collaborating with different people every type of music you can think of she's done every type of collaboration film you know and been so helpful and so kind to people like me on the way up helps say and she's still doing it she just carries on doing it well I'd, i mean if you feel comfortable doing it i'd love you to introduce me to her well um, i'd love to have her on the podcast because i think uh, you know in some small way it can help you know let a new generation know how important she has been and, and still is and yeah. how hysterically funny she is as well that's the other is she? thing maybe people might think that she's quite scary from some of the things she's done but she's well, she is probably the most hilarious and she's definitely the most articulate person I've ever met. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'll tell you who else I've been trying to get on the podcast, and I've been in conversations with her for like two years now, is um, Annette Peacock. Do you know Annette Peacock? No, I don't, I'm afraid. Oh, you've got to go. Enlighten me. <laughs> you've got to go and check her out. Um, she was the first woman who came from that kind of New York art scene yeah, 70s. She was the first woman to experiment with um, electronic treatment of voice. So she would feed her voice through a, a VCS3 or whatever, and it, it, she would merge great songwriting and performance with treated voice. And yeah. and uh, sorry, so you've got to go and listen to an album called um, "I'm the One." I shall. Uh, and it was, I think it's 1973 or something. Right. Uh, but she's still performing now. She's still amazing. Um, and in fact, 
you know Mick Ronson, right? Yeah. So he he did uh, a couple of her songs on his first solo album, for instance. Um, anyway. So it's, it's coming out of your time, but it's just... But that really up. interesting glam time when Wendy Carlos and Clockwork... Yeah. Uh, Big yeah. inspiration for us. Um, Diamanda Gallas as well. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, let's not forget Diamanda. What the most incredible performance. I found some really fantastic quote that Simon Reynolds wrote about what it was like she played on New Year's Day at the Festival Hall, I think, in about 19... God, when was it? 89 or 88? I went to see that gig and he, he managed to conjure up what it was like to see Diamanda and it was like... This felt like five or six different voices were coming out of her throat at, wow. at any time. She was so amazing and so brave. All the stuff she did for AIDS, you know, for ACT UP. And That's right. When the, another thing that governments couldn't be asked to do in America or over here was get any help for anyone suffering from that awful disease. And mm. Terence Higgins Trust had to virtually do it all. It's another really, when you look back over the 80s, there are many things to get just need to remember to be angry about actually the way that we were all treated in those days i think yeah. we're all um overwhelmed with how, how we're being treated now actually it's like payback time isn't it it's like we're now paying the bill yeah so, the bill has to be paid but unfortunately yeah in literal terms it's not the elite that are paying the bill is it it's the it's the average person anyway it's fast, yeah it's um fast. let's talk about Comedy is an influence on 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 goth as well. Uh, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, I know. No, no, but I mean, I I I I just relate back to. I didn't really used to hang out with musicians very much in 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 the eighties and late seventies. I used to hang out with alternative comedians more. Yeah, well, one of my favourite stories that and I photographers discovered... and graphic designers and people like that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, one of my best stories that I discovered when interviewing Jim Thurwell was that when he lived in Nabbit Grove, he lived with Keith Allen, who broke open the score. And it was actually no, Keith yeah. who said to him, Jim, come on, man, you've got to get out of your bedroom. Because here Jim was like Joe Meek, just sitting there with his tape recorder and making his little, you've got to be in a real band. And, and so if it wasn't for comedy god Keith Allen, maybe... You know, that's another weird thing that I had. But then the Batcave and the Comedy Store were at the same venue. They were yes. at 619 Street, which could be the terminus of all ley lines in London, I think, that building. Well, it, it should have a blue plaque at least. Yeah. Yeah, it should. Um, yeah so, so what I'm thinking is, it, I mean, I used to live in Notting Hill. I used to live on just off Westmore Park Road. And um, so and I'm part of that scene. I'm still part of that scene now. Actually, I'm still occasionally yeah. see all all the all, all the great and good that come from that area, and and uh, I kind of miss it to be honest. I live in Marylebone now, which is nice, but not the same. Well, just round the corner from where uh, John Lennon, uh, John and Yoko used to live, actually. And isn't it also near where um, what's his name from the Perfumo Affair? Stephen Ward, didn't he live near in that area? It's a very interesting area, Marylebone, yeah. I think, anyway. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're talk talking about Notting Hill. I mean, where were you living at, at that period? Uh, when you moved I, to London? 
I got my first flat in London in, in Labrick Grove in 1987, just at the start of 87. Right. <laughs> I was and, still there at that time. Yeah. And where you did you, did you ever, because you used to go into that, it was the Earl, not the Earl of London, it was the Duke of Norfolk that was the goth pub when I was there. And it, it was where very, is that? it was on Westbourne Park Road. Was it? Duke of Norfolk? No, Westbourne Grove, sorry. It's on Westbourne Grove. And it no, had, I never went to that one. We used to go to the Earl of Lonsdale. Yeah, we went to the Lonsdale after the Norfolk closed down. But what the Norfolk had was the first two Sisters of Mercy singles on their jukebox, which were <laughs> even then worth about 60 quid each because they were so rare. And like the only way I could hear them was to go into this one. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days when we didn't have an entire, the world's record collection in our pocket. You know. I know. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad, it's a bad thing? thing. I, I do too. It's having the quest. Oh, you're being attacked by a killer bee, Martin. It's all right. Don't worry. We attract <laughs> them with all our lavender and stuff. Um, no, I think it's a bad thing uh, because people get overwhelmed with choice and uh, kind of blanded out by, or rather we've lost our agency uh, as mm. individuals because we there's that kind of little demon itching thing going, fear of missing out. So you, you, you're constantly being drawn towards... Oh, what is it? What's being recommended to me? What are my friends recommending to me? So this, uh, the idea, and it, this comes back to goth actually, and and tribes. Yeah, we've, we've lost tribes. I know that's sad, isn't it? It's so sad culturally. We've lost tribes. I go to the local pub here in Malibu, it's all young urban professionals, and everybody looks the same. And I'm going, where's the individuality? You know. It's kind of, it's really kind of sad. I can hearten you, I hope, by saying some really very beautiful young goth ladies, gents, and in between have come to some of my gigs. And the ones that are probably young enough to be my grandchildren are the ones that are really into it the most. And they've adapted it into their own new thing. They look different from how I did, but they're extremely creative. They look beautiful and they've got their own music that is saying a lot of political stuff that they're really passionate about and yeah right. they're, they're so, quite feisty as well so yeah. I think you know there's might have been a boring generation between us that were more into yeah you I know hipsters the first youth culture that had no culture behind it but I think it's a good th I think you're right uh but I also think that, um, you know, let's talk about the media then. Let's talk about, because you're from that world. Um, it's but the world I was in doesn't exist anymore. No, it's fucked. Um, and what, you know, I mean, the social media aspects of it is so banal and ubiquitous now. Yeah, and so Big Brother, isn't it? It really is frightening. And yeah. <laughs> I, uh, something tickled me this morning. It was on the news. They're going, you know, the government is throwing out all these tidbits to try and distract you from what's actually happening now. So all these people like, uh, I listen to talk sports, I'm a football fan, but then I ignore the news. But I overheard this thing and they get fed. You know, it's global, which is part of the, an adjunct to the whole Tory party thing. They, they just recycle all the stuff they're told to say. And it's like, 
one of the headline pieces was um, the government are going to clamp down on on uh, on uh, equipment manufacturers asking for your personal details. I'm going, what the fuck's all this about? I said, yeah, uh, as an example, they gave, um, there was, uh, uh, for instance, there was a uh, a dishwasher company that wanted to know your date of birth. <laughs> so, that made me laugh so much. Um, no. And that's where we're at, because the profit they can make, the profit that companies can make from manufacturing things is is now being overtaken by the value of the data they can scrape. And isn't and all the machines talking to each other as well? Isn't that part of it? I mean, um, I, my dad reads the oldie because it's it was a magazine formed by Richard Ingram's of Private Eye, and it's the only. Oh yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah it's so good. There was a hilarious. I was reading it round at his. There was a hilarious. A man wanted to buy an electronic toothbrush, and when he did, he was their tech editor. When he did it, it asked him to download an app. So it could talk to his fridge or something. What? And it could talk to other appliances and tell him off for not cleaning his teeth for longer. Well, you know? my my Apple Watch just tells me off all the time for not doing stuff. We are being told off by flipping chips and algorithms and what what are they? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though. It's not funny. It's kind of dystopian. But uh... we've gone definitely gone through into a sort of world that we. When we watched Blade Runner and but Philip K. Dick and 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 uh, Stanley Kubrick were sort of inventing when we were little, now we seem to be in it. Do you know what I uh, I, I was thinking the other day about two thousand and one, um, and the genius of Stanley Kubrick, right? So yeah. not only is it a brilliant film and you know the cinematography and Terry Rawlings and you know, all that, and but the banality. Of the future, I love the fact like, Rigsby the, in space. Yeah, the 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 dialogue in that film is totally banal. Yeah, and I just what I keep thinking back to that and think we are in this banal future now. Yeah, and we are going to have to be in those spaceships soon because we'll have destroyed this Earth. So we'll have to be floating around up there with no planet left to live on. Well, we won't. Well, because they won't let us on. <laughs> that's true we can just all them through. motherfuckers who are uh have got the billions that'll be first off elon office. musk will be out there somewhere yeah, don't worry. it's not it's not women and children first it's not <laughs> women it's not and children first to die that's yeah what... <laughs> women children disabled first yeah. to die yeah um yeah. <clears throat> I'll get told off by by some of my listeners for being too political with that. Fuck you all. Well, go and listen to another podcast if you don't like it. That's why I had to bring all the politics into my book, because you can't explain this music in isolation. It's really happening. I mean, I think it's one of the greatest things, and I mentioned it on the on, on the comment that I made on your book, is um, the brilliance of, of your contextualisation of the entire scene over time. Yeah, and, and this kind of switching backwards, uh, forwards between this kind of, you know, kind of distraction fantasy world of, of uh, of goth, and solid brick wall reality. Yeah, and um, it's interesting the people who criticise uh, me and and other people like me for bringing politics into music. 
Exactly. Just, we are now in a world where people want, uh, they are more desperate for distraction, I think, rather than they just don't want to face reality because it's too horrific yeah. at the time. And I think that's incredibly sad. Yeah, they do. I know. But I, I think, you know, people m may not even know or may have forgotten how this country was sort of sold down the river into Rupert Murdoch's pocket. And, Absolutely. You well, know, and, and the rest of the... the, the, the um, you know, yeah. I know, exactly. So, and things like the Battle of the Beanfield at Stonehenge, the way that that whole way of life, you know, after they've destroyed the miners and, and that, now let's just stop there being any little stragglers thinking they can live a little bit differently. We've learned how to do it. We've learned how to put down dissent in Northern Ireland. We've learned how to put down dissent here. That's just, that's the end of it. And then I think after that moment, that's when music does turn a bit more escapist than, than this. it was all quite heavily politicised before then. And that Yeah, it was. Era 85, it, apart from people like me, Amanda, um, with that huge thing in her sights about AIDS, there wasn't, there's not much more heavily politicised music that came after that. It was more kind of steam music, really. Yeah. We, 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 uh, Heaven 17 start every gig with fascist groove thing just to nail our colours to the mast. That's, yeah. about, that's over 500 gigs we've done now. So, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's very funny. We play, I mean, this is every gig. So we do some gigs that are completely like, you know, families picnicking and they're going what are they talking about you know <laughs> we're out in the in you know in the in the kind of tory voting boondocks uh talking about this stuff and they just ignore it anyway um <laughs> it's funny actually i know terry <laughs> edwards had this brilliant little song that he used to do at fg just so said, Margaret Thatcher, we still hate you. And then it was like a death metal. <laughs> you know, and that was it. Just to remind you, <laughs> you might be dead. Well, but, that's where it all, all started. And that's where it's all we're now paying for, as you quite rightly identify. Um, so I'm looking at my notes here. I think we have pretty much covered it. Right, let's, let's finish on a positive note. What yeah. are your tips for the... Positive tips for the future of not only goth but music, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think there's enough. Yeah, I've met enough young people to know that there is they're doing their own things and they're kind of doing it off radar as well because they are sick of the ubiquitous force yeah. of of the social media. And I think as everything does go in circles, as there's been a swing back to vinyl, there'll be a swing back to you. People are making their own fanzines again and selling them and all that stuff that comes. The truck. The only good thing about a time being really hard, which it was at the end of the 70s and the early 80s, and it is again now, is that it is a massive stimulus for creativity. And I really feel the young people of today feel that and that they are, they are doing their own thing. And if, if you know, looking at, the brilliant stuff that you did in the 80s and the the brilliant music that in general did come out of that really incredibly fertile time for music work, which there hasn't really been the like of it since, you know, I think really we had an embarrassment of riches as we grew up 
All the oh, music absolutely. is brilliant. Even stuff that I thought was terrible at the time. Now I think, oh my God, that was actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. No, but I do think, I think the young people of today are, and, and hopefully they have parents who, you know, let them do this stuff aren't maybe quite as confrontational as hostile as as our generation of parents might have been to such change because they lived through the 80s so i think there's more i think there's more interesting creativity around than ever i mean i was teaching an ma course for uh uh, production and songwriting for five years at target in london so I, yeah. I, I was mentoring a lot of young people in, in creativity. I think there's more there's more around now than ever. The problem yeah. is that a lot of the is it two is twofold for me. When one is confidence, yeah, they need you need that approbation. You need to see an end goal to keep yeah. that creativity up and to you know because otherwise you end up with that bedroom culture which is. You know, and it's just well, I don't, I don't really feel confident about showing the world my stuff, and you know that's really destructive. I think anyway, yeah. um, and then the other thing is, it's becoming a little bit like a a, a kind of middle class person's yes, that thing. Is very, uh, yeah. There's not so much true working class anger. You know, you get things like sleep and mods coming out, which is a rare thing. And stuff mm. like that, and there's lo- But what I want to say is, there's loads of creativity out there, but the nucleation sites for it are less. Yeah. So, like the the gathering sites for things, the scenes are less. Yeah, there aren't as many venues. There aren't as many pubs. People are discouraged youth, from youth meeting up and They're all just sitting like that and not yeah, just. That's it. So. You know, yeah. the only way to counter counterbalance that is to actually organise and uh, and get together and do stuff in real time, not just on your laptop. Is my advice. Um, anyway, people enjoy it. Yeah, no, people Smash get a kick out of coming. They always have. So yeah. yeah. Smash hits questions, which I ask everyone. Right. <laughs> right. Yay! What's your favourite film? Well, that's a bit difficult, isn't it? I no, just one of them. Whatever pops into your head. Well, Night of the Hunter, I would say with my goth head on. And I think it's, it is one of my favourite films. It's a great it's film. So beautiful, isn't it? And yeah. Charles Horton, and Robert Mitchum and Shelley Winter said that was their favourite film they'd ever worked on, that he was never allowed to make another film again. So really? there's a sad goth, yeah, because it bombed at the box office because no one knew really what it was or where to put it. It was too right. far ahead of its time, like Cabaret there. Yeah. And so Charles Lawton never got to direct a film again, so it's got a suitably sad gothic, as well as Robert Mitchum's character being kind of a role model for every goth. <laughs> Nick Cave was definitely into him, Jeffrey Lee Pierce. That imagery, the Cardiacs did a, a, an album with them on the front cover called Sing to God, with, which was basically that bit when um, Lillian Gish is up in the sky with the little children's right. head the end she's the guardian angel and then nick cave did that video where he killed kylie minogue where the ultras is great in a with the river going past just like night of the hunter thing oh i've got to re-watch it actually it's ages since i've seen it it's so uh, beautiful yeah yeah what's your favorite book 
Well, at the moment, my favourite book, I've got trillions. I am reading um, Jonathan Strange and Mr Norell. And there's a suitably sad goth story about this. My One of my dear friends, Joe, who I dedicated my book to, sadly died before my book even came out, the goth book. And um, in the days of confusion that followed that, we were asked to help his sister take stuff out of his flat and we wrote she let, she very kindly let me keep some things and I kept his book of Jonathan Strange and Mr Norell because it looks like a huge grimoire it's massive and I had seen the tv series and absolutely loved it I particularly loved her grasp of Yorkshire all it was so brilliant the the, the master magicians of York and the talking uh, gargoyles in York Minster and all of that and then we we're like, oh, we ain't fairy yet all of that stuff I love yeah. but reading it in the big book is even better and at the moment I can't believe what a genius Susanna Clark is I love Hilary Mantel as well my other one I would have said was Wolf Hall for the right. same reason that they've taken weird stuff from the past that did really happen but in Susanna Clark's case she's mixed it up with stuff that she's made up but you can't tell where one starts and the other ends Interesting. There is recognisable history of 17th century England. Well, we, I mean, these tips are priceless for our, our podcast listeners. You know, that's the main reason I ask these questions because it, it leads people down massive rabbit holes and they, yeah. they the tips they get, you know. So anyway, uh, favourite yeah. TV show, past, present, uh, box set, anything you want? Ooh, that is also really hard. They're all hard. Um, I know. Well, gosh, at the moment, my favourite TV show to cheer myself up, actually, is Plebs. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Quite funny. It's well written. Yeah, it's not my favourite TV programme of all time, but at the moment, the one I can think of, because now I've said two really sad things, I want to say something. (laughs) (laughs) You're a goth goth champion. You're allowed to be that. Um, Okay, this is really tough. Who's your favourite author? Mm, my favourite author. That is really hard. Mm, God. I'm, well, I've talked about Derek Raymond. He made me want to become a crime writer. There's him. There's David Peace, who I absolutely love, and he wrote so brilliantly about Yorkshire. There's, there's Jake Arnott. There's my lovely friend Chris Fowler, who again has just disappeared into the ether far too young. Oh. I know. And Nelson Algren, who wrote The Man with the Golden Arm. Oh, God. Um, I always normally say him because I still, the power of, of what, what he wrote and how he got the stories of all the underdogs of Chicago. And this is a thing he shares in common with Derek Raymond. It's telling the stories of people who never got their voices heard. And really listening to what they had to say, but then having that ability that they may not have had themselves to spin that into a story that loads of people around the world will want to read. That's very well put. Um, Which of your own work are you most proud of? I'm really proud of this goth book, actually. It's really good. Yeah, I think it took a whole lifetime to research. (laughs) But also it... It was what I did during lockdown, and that was the weirdest time that I've, all of us have lived through, I'm sure, apart from older people old enough to have lived through the war as well. Yeah. But and then, and 
it was really brilliant in a way because I was doing all that stuff that everyone did in lockdown where you clear out your cupboard. Yeah. And I found all my books of interviews that I'd had when I was nice. at Sandman, all written down in these nice little goth notebooks that all of them and so, and so and then loads of other stuff that I'd saved like the last thing I was ever working on at Sam's before it closed was Sisters of Mercy Family Tree found all that and massive cache of, of fanzines and stuff that I oh collect. my god you've got to do an exhibition <laughs> that would be quite good actually. oh you should yeah apart from the fact that most of it is packed up and in storage now but yeah it was because I've been trying to be for years as well but <laughs> library it was a uh, yeah it would be quite good to have a, a goth exhibition i know some people or the vna or yeah. the vna because they've got all their costume collection in there is amazing and you can yeah. see, you know what goths of different eras wore my god is it well that that would my goth <laughs> my goth <laughs> you could have a victorian parlor area you could have a georgian area yeah Actually, one of the things I did recently, we got I did a screening with Travis, my friend Travis Elbro of The Hunger. And watching that again, that's got all these overtones of Barry Lyndon in it. And yeah. I think Barry Lyndon must have been an incredibly influential film, the whole look of that. There's quite a lot of films from around that time where suddenly it, it goes into Barry Lyndon. I love Barry Lyndon. The outfit. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. brilliant. So, um, I just had a great idea. If you do the exhibition, say at the V and A, yeah, um, you know they're always trying. They always say when you when you do an application for arts council, whatever, they always go, okay, what's your reach and what what's the educational element and all that stuff. I, you could have like an area for children where you have makeup artists, you know, making them up as goths. That would be so great. It would be brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. I love the idea of the VA with all these goth looking kids knocking about. Because when we did when we did the Whitby Goth Festival, it wasn't just goths. I mean there were some traditional goth types. Uh, but it was it's kind of merged with the whole steampunk scene. Yeah. yeah so entire yeah. families turning up as Victorian you know, steampunk families. Fucking great. I know. I was gotta go. You've got to go. I was once really proud to get um, a shop near here had this little stripy baby grizz when, when my friend had his son so he could make him look like the baby in the Adams family <laughs> <laughs> and he went penciled on a little pencil moustache oh brilliant <laughs> <So> sweet <laughs> that's brilliant um, yeah. okay so next question <clears throat> uh, what's, have you got any unfulfilled ambitions yeah to move to Yorkshire <laughs> Yes. That's my biggest God, God's County. I want to live in Goth's own county. But no one wants to buy my flat here at the moment. So uh, love, love, are you Chris. serious about that? No, the two places I've loved the most in my whole life, the first time I ever saw them was Labrick Grave in Yorkshire. My granddad came from Yorkshire, but we never I never got to live there. But um Which part of Yorkshire do you want to live in? I want to live in Beverly in the East Riding. Right, it's nice around there. I mean, I've got lots of obviously friends in Yorkshire and uh, not just South Yorkshire, but I mean, like yeah. Bridge and all that stuff. My granddad was from Dinnington, which is quite near Sheffield. Oh, Dinnington's near, near Sheffield. Yeah. Um, and of course, the coast is it's gorgeous, it's, it's great. Hot. 
Um, it's got the lot, hasn't it? It does. He has everything, and the the Dales are just amazing. And that whole bit that David Hockney got really obsessed with that road that goes from Bridlington to York is so gorgeous. The yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, I shouldn't say too much about it. I don't want to make it trendy or anything. Well, it is trendy. <laughs> it's all right. Um, interesting thing is Vince Clark from Iran. Mm. At one point, he did the um, he did the Pennine Way because he was a you know very keen hiker. Oh, good. He started at Edale and went all the way up to the top. I would love to do that. Ah, it's an amazing thing to do, and um, he fell in love with with Yorkshire. And he yeah. bought a farmhouse <laughs> that was like 20 miles. No, not, it can't be 20 miles. I think it was about 10 miles from the nearest public road. Oh, it, was a dere- it was a derelict but intact farmhouse. Yeah. Uh, completely no, no electricity, nothing. It was like he bought it and he, he, he paid to have 10 miles of road paved. And then he sold it within a year because he, he 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 met the love of his life and they moved to Brooklyn. Oh, anyway, madness! <laughs> he could have turned that into the ultimate. Yeah, he yeah. always loved this kind of desolate kind of Wuthering romantic height. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I've just come back from a fantastic road trip in the west of Ireland on the Wild Atlantic Way, and that was oh, incredible. I don't even. If you've ever done that, but my God. No, it's amazing. That's like it's scenery that you can't even oh, believe is real, isn't it? Yeah. A million beaches with nobody on them, you know. Anyway, um an alternative career if you've not been a novelist, journalist. I think now that maybe I'd quite like to have been a horticulturalist or a gardener. <laughs> oh, you've been gardener then. I love gardening. I yeah, and I think it's kind of my uh, my uncle is a brilliant gardener, and he says it's he is brilliant artist as well. But he turned to gardening above all others, and uh, he says because it's living art. It's a, it's a noble uh, pursuit, I think. And we've not. I've never had a garden in my life. How about that? Because uh, I've always lived in central cities in council blocks. Not now, obviously, but I think we're yeah. going to move to the, some form of countryside soon. Um, who's your favourite goth artist? Oh my goth! I know. Oh my goth! Oh favourite. Well, my can I say Lydia and Barry Adamson because yeah, they're of my, my two. And I probably have known I know them both quite well, and so I know what brilliant people they are as well as what amazing. And yeah, they've both been very kind to me as well, but. The stuff they've done is so amazing, and neither of them. I'm an enormous fan of Barry. I tried to get him in in the early days on the podcast, and he turned me down, unfortunately. That's a real shame. I know. Anyway. Anyway, um, no, and just reading his book as well, um, up above the city, down beneath the stars, stuff that he had to overcome in his life. It's amazing. Really. So chipper. Yeah. Yeah, he writes it in a really brilliant way. That whole thing about the secret spy world and everything I think was one of the main things that's kept him going like having a good fantasy life where he is a secret agent and you know somebody who doesn't really feel he's part of this world he's part of another world and that's interesting yeah 
it's really so can I say those can I have those two you can of course thank you um and the final question I have to ask everybody this even if they've got no contact with yeah. the world of but um what's your favorite synthesizer oh um well I think it might be the mini Moog. yeah that's the most common answer I love the sound of that and yeah for a non-connoisseur but it's yeah they look cute as well don't they and they're relatively easy to use you know it's not like some some of the scents that we've had in the past you have to you know you have to have a white lab coat to get anything out of them but uh, <laughs> uh but no it's like literally plug and play and then tweak a few knobs and you can get amazing sounds out of it um that's it I think it's been really good, actually. Yeah, thank you. It's been uh, so lovely talking to you. I've really enjoyed this insight into a different world. Uh, it's not really a different world. I mean, it's something I grew up with. It's like a parallel universe. They kind of, they do yeah. meet in Venn diagramish way. Yeah, I mean, I, I still am very good friends with a lot of people who I would regard as being a part of that subset uh like uh Addy Newton from Clock DBA still yeah. a friend and he's still doing amazing things all over the world I'm going how do people in Lithuania know who he is and <laughs> how come you're playing in you know Fiji and like it's like a really? lot of this a lot of this kind of more profound artistically driven stuff is in terms of numbers much less uh common that, that has incredibly loyal fans. Yeah. That's another thing about goth as well. Yeah. You can grow old being a goth. It's your whole life, isn't it? Well, I think we'll leave it on that. What a perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, brilliant. Where do you live? In Labrick Grove. Oh, do you? I'm yeah. just around the corner. Um, yeah. It'd be nice to meet up at some point and, yeah, and shoot the breeze. That would be lovely, yeah. Maybe with our mutual friend, Sean. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. He's, he's a nice guy. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. All right, darling. I shall well, um, thanks, put this Martin. out to you and I'll let you know. Okay. Thanks so right. much. Thank Bye. you. Bye bye. That was Kathy. Her new book, Season of the Witch. A History of Goth is really worth checking out. Uh, I strongly suggest that you do. It certainly educated me about a lot of stuff and kind of made sense of that period to me. And, um, yeah, generally enjoyed her, her lovely demeanour and um, and the way that she intellectualises that period, I think, is really relevant and interesting. Thanks for your listening and attention. And thanks to all the Patreons as well who helped keep this going. Bye. Hi, just a quick reminder that we, Heaven 17, are going on tour in November and uh, tickets are close to selling out, if not sold out, in many venues, but there are still some tickets left. Uh, so I'd just like to remind you not to miss out because it's going to be very special. It's the 40th anniversary of Luxury Gap and there'll be some surprises and anybody who's been to our shows before knows that they are... Um, an evening well spent, I hope. Um, so I'm just going to run through the dates for you, just to remind you. And you can, uh, if you go to hem17.com, 
they're all on there, the dates, and you can buy direct from from the website. So it's 2nd of November, O2 Academy in Leeds. 3rd of November, Boiler Shop in Newcastle. 4th of November, O2 Academy, Liverpool. 6th of November, SWG3 Galvanizers. Where the hell is that? Uh, let me just have a quick look. Where that is? Galvanizers, that's Glasgow. Yes, sorry. Um, O2 Ritz in Manchester on the 7th of November. 9th of November is O2 Academy in Bournemouth. 10th of November, O2 Academy, Bristol. 11th of November, Roadmender in Northampton. 13th of November, Delaware Pavilion in um, Bexhill-on-Sea. Beautiful place. Uh, 14th of November, our favourite London gig, O2 Shepherds Bush Empire. 16th of November is the Nick Rains LCR Norwich. Uh, 17th of November is the Wolfren uh, at the Halls, Wolverhampton. And finally, the 18th of November, O2 Academy Sheffield. So, as I say, some of these are either sold out or close to sold out, but there are tickets available and uh, in, in uh, about half of them, at least. So please, please come along. You never know. We're not getting any younger. Get on with it. Come and see us while we've still got the energy to do it. Uh, we are really looking forward to it, so please come along. Buy your tickets. Heaven17.com <laughs> 